From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Many people who get COVID-19 temporarily lose their sense of smell and taste, including Chef Frank Bonanno. One day he put on deodorant and couldn't smell it. And of course I ran downstairs and ate like six different things and realized I couldn't taste. We'll also meet a CU neuroscientist who runs a smell lab. We all take this for granted. We don't even think about smell. But it is very important if you lose it, especially if you lose it suddenly. Then, the new film Minari is based on real life. A family leaves Colorado for a farm in the Ozarks. As a kid, I just remember that for me it was a big adventure to go to this wild plot of land that my dad uh, was so excited about. Um, He was always talking about the color of the dirt, and that's something you see in the film. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver, Aurora, Glenwood Springs, Grand Junction, Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. These recent months have been tough for everyone, but month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a plot twist straight out of the Twilight Zone. A prolific chef loses his ability to taste and smell. Except in this case, it's real life. Frank Bonanno, who has nine different restaurants and a food hall in Denver, got COVID-19. Hi, Frank. Hi, how are you, Ryan? Well... I haven't got, well, so far as I know, I don't think I've gotten COVID-19. How are you feeling overall? I feel pretty good, actually. I'm very lucky, I think. What was the sickest you felt? Um, I had a very light cough, and I think the headache was probably the worst symptoms I had, other than losing my sense of taste and smell. Yeah. So tell me about realizing that you were losing those senses. So I... (laughs) We had somebody who came back from a funeral in Louisiana, and we were exposed to him. So we all went and got tested. I came back negative from a rapid test. And then he came back negative as well. And two days later, I started to get this headache and a very light cough. And so I went to go get retested. And when it came back positive, I was having really bad headaches. And... And then about the fourth day, I woke up and I was drinking coffee and I could not taste it. And then I realized after I showered and put on my deodorant, I couldn't smell my deodorant, um, which I wear a very manly scented Uh deodorant. So um, then you just start to pay attention to it. I think you just take it for granted, you know, the everyday things that you do. And what you notice, and then, of course, I ran downstairs and ate like six different things and realized I couldn't taste. It's very bizarre. It's one of the more bizarre things I've ever had. And when you say, for instance, with the coffee, that you couldn't taste it, you mean at all? Like no receptors? It was like drinking water, I guess, without even any flavor, like even the chlorine taste in the water. Did this result in some sort of panic for you as a chef? Um, I think had I not known that this was a side, uh, an effect of COVID, yeah, I would have freaked out. I think I'm very lucky that 
you know, I am not dependent on my, my sense of taste and smell. I mean, there are plenty of other chefs I work with and, you know, I can go a couple of days without cooking if I have to. That wasn't what went through my mind. My, it wasn't fear or anything like that. It was just personally not being able to taste or smell, you know, that was more of my fear and Mm. how long is this going to last? And those kinds of things, not so much the initial of like, Oh my God, my career is over, but just the fear that sets in on the realization that you can't smell or taste. Because you enjoy food, of course, in addition to making it. Yeah. It's the COVID 30, I think is what they call it. Right. When you were home quarantining. (laughs) Yeah. That number keeps getting inflated. Yeah. Um, but this has helped me to lose about 12 pounds. So that's been good. Just because without taste, you're not, I suppose you just don't crave stuff like you would have. You don't. You, I just drank a ton of water. Like, yeah, because there's, you don't taste anything or like that pop tart or caramel candy I would eat that there's no point in it. There's no enjoyment. So Frank, how long have you been without the sense of taste or smell? Uh, I'm going on about 13 or 14 days. It sounds like you had some confidence that your taste and smell would start to return. I mean, did you kind of furiously Google that? No, I just know from other people that have had it. And it's ironic that the group of people in our restaurant that got it, I think four of us lost the sense of taste and smell. Most of theirs has returned or returned pretty quickly. Jacqueline, my wife, lost it, but only for like two days. Hmm. So uh, would you say that your sense of smell and taste have returned? They're starting to in little waves. I, you know, what's funny is, is that like when I put on my deodorant now, a couple of days later, I can smell that initial waft of it, but then it, do, it goes away. Like if I lift up my shirt to smell, I don't necessarily smell it. So I get, I'm starting to get a little sensation of smell and taste back, but it's, Definitely not back all the way. Inconsistent. And does it get a little yeah. better each day? Uh, I hope so. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> I'm the hoping, question. yes. Well, this seems like a perfect opportunity to bring in a taste and smell expert from here in Colorado. Neuroscientist Diego Restrepo is at the CU School of Medicine. He's actually just recently gotten a grant to study why people lose their sense of smell and taste to COVID. Previously, he invented a tiny microscope to see inside a mouse's head as it smells things. He also has a grant to better understand how dogs sniff out explosives and drugs. And Diego, welcome to the program. Good morning. I am most curious to ask uh, whether you think, based on what we've seen with COVID-19, will Frank's sense of taste and smell return fully? What, What do we know? Yes, from what we know, it will. In So most people recover their sense of taste and smell uh, within a few months. Uh, there are some people that have a problem which is called parosmia, which is that things start smelling really bad, like garbage or something like that. But hopefully, I mean, usually that, that recovers. And there is a small number of people that they don't recover it uh, even after six months. Very small number of people. And that's called anosmia, so, so not being able to smell. Uh, but yes, most people recover the, the sense of smell. And that's a really interesting thing that, that does happen. 
Okay, so the terms we are being introduced to here, parosmia, uh, the medical term for experiencing distortions of the sense of smell. And then you said anosmia, which is losing smell altogether. Correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. How many cases of COVID-19 involve a loss of taste or smell? Like, what's the percentage? No, it's about 80%. It's large. It's large. I I guess I want to get a bit elementary here, Diego, and literally... Because I remember learning in elementary school how closely taste and smell are related. I, yes. I guess that means that COVID-19 affects both. It does affect both. So first of all, the first thing that we do with medical students is tell them that when the patient comes in and says that they lost their sense of taste, very likely it's a, a loss of smell. And the way you can test that is you actually close your nose, put a jelly bean in your mouth, start chewing and let go, and you'll see that the flavor is totally different when you have your nose open. So taste is really flavor, it's both taste, proper taste, and smell. And taste is detecting, for example, sugar, salt, and in COVID, they both go. Uh, So we did a, basically, when this started happening, I started getting emails. And I joined the group that's called the Global Consortium of Chemosensory Research. And we did a a survey of uh, about 4,000 patients. What we found is that they lost both their sense of smell and taste. And also something called chemisthesis. I don't know if you've heard about that, which is basically uh, tasting uh, chili peppers, something hot. That was a much smaller number of people. But yes, they lose both their sense of taste and smell. So I was curious because I did notice my son made bera, which is like a Spanish braised dish. And he said, oh, my gosh, it's so spicy. I did not realize that I was losing the sense of spice as well. So the spice will not permeate your tongue when you're having no sense of smell and taste. So what happens is those are separate systems. So what we were knew before is that when people got influenza, they would lose the sense of smell only but they had no problem with tasting uh, capsaicin or salt or sugar. They are separate, but for some reason, with the SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19, people lose all of them, can lose all of them. Well, that leads very naturally to the next question I have, Diego, which is how does a virus affect taste and smell? I mean, it just, to the outsider, it seems like an odd connection, you know? So if you're a virus and you want to get into the olfactory epithelium, you have to open the door. And you actually have a key that can open the door. And that key actually fits perfectly into a protein that we call ACE2. ACE2. And then you click open, and then you're the virus, you get inside. And then what happens is you replicate, which is the idea. That's you, you need to replicate and then leave that epithelium and go down to the lung. And what's that word you're using, epithelium? Epithelium is where the olfactory neurons are. Olfactory neurons are the ones that detect the odors. And it's basically a layer of tissue that's in your nose, basically. And COVID-19 knows how to interact with that system, huh? And many viruses do. And it's something that we study because it's a direct route into the brain. Now, the one thing is that The SARS-CoV-2 could have gotten into the brain through those neurons, but it appears not to get in there easily. So likely there's some defenses in there that we're trying to understand. 
Oh, that's interesting. So okay. You get in there, and then there's people in there that try to stop you from replicating. <laughs> <laughs> I like uh, I like referring to them as people. So there's a little bit of a defense mechanism here. Frank, any questions based on what you've heard so far? I mean, obviously, it's very scary when you think about a virus infecting your brain. So is it truly going into your brain that's causing it, or is it just getting in your old factories area? So there's a lot of studies on that. And they're all not that clear. So the, the clear thing is that it's not just getting into the brain and giving you encephalitis, which would basically kill you. There's other viruses that do that. Mm. So clearly not. It may be getting into the brain, but to much lower extent than elsewhere. The one place where it goes for sure is in the lungs. Is there something that if, like, because I had very few symptoms, but then lost my sense of smell, is it that your body is combating it so that you didn't go so much to your lungs and stays in your nose and olfactory? So that's what we're studying. And my idea is that probably losing your sense of smell is good for your body. You're basically killing the highway into the brain uh, on purpose. Now, I may be totally wrong on that one. We're studying that. <laughs> and what we're doing is taking that epithelium, that sheet of tissue, and we're actually putting in, in a Petri dish and we're growing them and infecting them with the SARS-CoV-2 to try to understand how is it that we infect with the virus, but it, you know, it basically takes it down, the olfactory neurons that, that smell the, the odors. So that's what we're trying to study. Fascinating. The idea would be that the loss of smell is almost as if a curtain is falling or a wall is coming up to block the virus from going into the brain. That's at least one of the working theories. The idea, yeah, yeah, basically taking down the bridge. And it is well known that in that area, there's immune responses. So, for example, it's been well studied in chronic sinusitis, and this would be an immune response. This is your defense system that is actually attacking the virus. Do you know much about what people experience long-term, Diego, who lose their sense of smell and taste? In other words, it, we, we heard earlier from Frank Bonanno just how much joy he gets from tasting things and smelling things. Um, what happens to people for whom these senses don't return? Frank, I understand we all take this for granted. We don't even think about smell. So in a way, when people think about the different senses, that's the one that you think, well, it's not very important. But it is very important if you lose it, especially if you lose it suddenly. And we knew this quite well for a traumatic brain injury. When you hit your head, a subset of people lose their sense of smell. And especially if you are a person that is a chef or is somebody that, that lives from the sense of smell, it makes a big difference. Now, what can you do? Uh, there's a subset of things that you can do. By the way, one of the things that's really important is to actually uh, belong to uh, a group of people that have had this happen, because that's part of what helps. Huh. The other thing that people are doing is smell training. Uh, so this is something that a doctor in Germany, Thomas Hummel, developed, which is basically you train yourself in the morning and you smell four different things. And that actually seems to help. Unfortunately, we do not have a really good way of curing the loss of the sense of smell, but we're, we're trying to work on that. We're trying to, it does make a difference. By the way, there's also loss of smell in uh, Alzheimer's disease, for example. And that's oh. not well understood. I had no idea. 
And so in some ways, you can try to retrain your sense of smell. I wonder if that has to do with neuroplasticity. So that's one thing about that's fascinating about this system. This is one of the few systems that in the brain uh, or the, the neural systems that actually has what's called stem cells in the adult. Mm-hmm. So this is the system that's regenerating all the time. So the olfactory neurons in your nose are different every three months. They're totally new. And so there's a lot of plasticity happening there. And there's also plasticity in the central nervous system in the brain, in the olfactory system. So there's new neurons in there. I've heard about increased suicide rates, Diego, among those who lose their sense of smell. Is that true? Yes, that is correct. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why we really would like to find better treatments for this. But there's a subset of people, a small subset of people, that commit suicide. And that's why I think it's very important that the people who lose their sense of smell become members of groups. That helps quite a bit. Of course, the other thing is hopefully you will uh, regain your sense of smell, Frank. So hopefully that will happen. So I was going to ask, there's one thing that old wives tell that some of us have been doing in the restaurant, which is charring an orange like Uh over a flame sprinkling brown sugar on it and then eating that pulp to help bring back your taste. I've done it like four times. It has not worked. Is there truth to that or is it just to stimulate? Hard to know, but you know that that smell training, which by the way is not the best treatment. It's something that is being used right now, but it works in a subset of people, is to actually be exposed to smell. So I would expect at the very least, that's what this is doing. You know, it's charred orange, and you're doing that, uh, so it might help. But the problem is I cannot tell you it does help. <laughs> but it is smell training-like. So I, I would do that. That would make sense. Yeah, Diego, what explains, if you know, the intermittent return of taste and smell for Frank? You know, he gets, he gets uh, hints of these things. So I'm not surprised at all, Frank. But this is me trying to think about what's going on, you know, so I, I don't know. But likely, this is what's called habituation. So one thing about our normal use of the sense of smell is that we should not be smelling everything that's in here all the time. Because otherwise, you know, it would be very, very distracting. So we have something that's called habituation. So, and, and we do that with uh, experiments in, in animals, in mice, which is, you first smell something and it's strong, and then you sort of forget about it. And so there's a system in there that's that's turning it off on purpose. And very likely when these new cells are coming in, they are being able to send a signal, but for some reason they're being turned off very quickly. And what the system needs to do is to become plastic and start figuring out that, no, I need to change this. I need to actually be able to look at that information that's coming in. And, and that's likely what's happening. What's, what's happening is the system is realizing that it's getting something and changing the synapses, the communication from one neuron to the other one so that you can eventually taste, well, taste and smell. I want to say something gross. Um, Frank, it occurred to me that if I lost my sense of smell, the first thing I'd try to do is go for the rankest thing I could find, you know, like poo or something uh, <laughs> and just you know get my nose right up in it and go do I have anything have you tried to expose yourself to like really gross stuff just to see oh of course I washed my son's clothes the other day and 
I picked up one of his socks that normally would disgust me. Not that he has terrible foot odor, but he is a 17-year-old boy, and I couldn't smell it. So I was like, it might be clean or it might be dirty. So, yeah, I've done the disgusting test, Ryan, if that's your question. That's my question. Everybody, I think, has. Yeah, and that's one thing that is important for the people who lose their sense of smell. They have to be really careful about not detecting smoke, for example. Um, oh. that's, that's something that's really important. Or gas. I hadn't really thought about how often smell is an alert for danger and, and how important that aspect is. So it sounds to me, Diego Restrepo, as if COVID-19 provides uh, a really excellent opportunity to further our understanding of the olfactory system. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I think it's... So we've always known that viruses actually infect that olfactory epithelium. And we know that there's an immune system, that there's a reaction in there, and uh, we really need to understand it better. The, the thing that's difficult, by the way, which is interesting, is that this infects mostly humans, but does not infect the animal model system that we use, which is the mouse. The mouse. Um, yeah, so we have to do the work with olfactory neurons from, from humans. Diego, does that mean that you're looking for human subjects for this research? Well, actually, there, there is one thing. So I, am, I belong to the, the Global Consortium, and we have a self-reported questionnaire that we want more and more people to, to answer. So that's for sure one thing that we do. In our research here, we are actually using uh, human olfactory neurons that we culture. Yeah. So not now for that research, but yes, for the global consortium by any means. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. I wish you both good health. Well, thank you very much. And thank, thank you, you, doctor. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Diego Restrepo is a neuroscientist on the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. Denver chef Frank Bonanno's restaurants include Mizuna and Osteria Marco. If you've had COVID-19 and lost your sense of smell and taste, I'd like to hear about it. How did you first realize it? How long did it disappear? Have you done any taste training? Email your experiences, coloradomatters at cpr.org. That address again, Colorado Matters at CPR.org. Donald Trump's legal team begins its defense today in the Senate impeachment trial. The former president is accused of inciting an insurrection. Pro-Trump extremists stormed the U.S. Capitol building January 6th. The impeachment managers wrapped their case Tuesday, Thursday, that is. Two of Colorado's Democratic members of Congress, Diana DeGette and Joe Neguse, are on that team trying the case before the Senate. CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim has been observing the proceedings all week. She talked about it with public affairs reporters Andy Kenny and Benta Berkland in the return of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Caitlin, you are there in the building. I'm really curious what has surprised you. I think what has stood out and what has surprised me is how well the impeachment managers have used video from Trump's speeches and probably more importantly and more effectively, video from social media, security cameras, body cams to recreate what happened at the Capitol on January 6th into one coherent 
comprehensive and riveting timeline. I mean, Goose and Get talked about how they expected senators to have this visceral reaction to the videos, and, and you're seeing that in the chamber. And it wasn't just senators, obviously, who were in that building that day. You, Caitlin, were at the Capitol on January 6th. Have you learned anything new from these presentations? I don't know if it's new. I think what what really kind of struck me from these presentations is how well they put together sort of the timeline of it. I mean, you know, I was here in my little bubble trying to figure out what was going on. You'd get dispatches and, and emails from other people in different parts of the building, but it was so scattershot. Like you didn't, you were just sort of in the moment and you had no idea. And even days after, you know, videos would come out, but it was still, you know, oh God, this horrible thing happened here. Oh God, this horrible thing happened there. But to see everything sort of laid out, it was shocking and effective. And I think it brought everybody, not just the senators, the staffers, the reporters, everybody back to that day in a, in a way that's still kind of hard to shake. That's kind of what surprised me is I think of, you know, a Senate trial as a really kind of stately, staid thing, mostly just people talking. And, and yet it seems like you've got more of this emotional multimedia experience. But it does seem like I mean, I'm assuming that the outcome is pretty much predetermined anyway, no matter how emotional it gets in there, right? Yeah. You know, Andy, I think you hit on a really good point. This is unusual in, in, in the fact that senators are both not, not just jurors, they're witnesses to the events of that day. And they were also victims to the events of that day. But on the other hand, everything is preordained. I mean, fine, they're, everybody's reliving that day. But this is why, like, this constitutional vote that happened earlier in the week is so important. It's what Republicans can pull out to justify a no vote. It doesn't matter how shocked they were. It doesn't matter, like, how angry they might have been from that day. They can just say, we did not think this should have been tried here in the Senate. The merits of the case don't matter. What matters is the Senate was not the place where this should have been tried. Arguing on procedure. Exactly. I mean, when you're talking about the effectiveness of this presentation— one of the people at the center of that is Congressman Jonah Goose. He's a relatively new member of Congress and represents the second congressional district. You know, he's really been in the spotlight. And it was interesting to me. I was talking to my dad the other day. He's a Republican. He doesn't live in Colorado. And he said the person who impressed him the most throughout this whole thing, and he's been watching it, is Nagoose. He's like, who is that guy? Wow, he passed the dad test. <laughs> he passed the dad test, yes. <laughs> well, you know, your dad is right. Nagoose has been front and center on this. You know, he's this is just the start of his second term. and But even in his first term, you know, he was popular and well-liked within the caucus. You know, he held a leadership position. He's someone who can work with progressives and moderates. Um, and so he was also one of the leaders debating why it was constitutional for the Senate to impeach a former president. And when it came to presenting the merits of the case, he was the second person to talk to the senators. And I think he was very effective, you know, going from law professorish to empathetic and reminding people why this is important. What you experienced that day, what we experienced that day, what our country experienced that day is the framers' worst nightmare come to life. Presidents can't inflame insurrection in their final weeks and then walk away like nothing happened. You know, I've seen similar buzz about Nagus and his performance just on social media, people commenting that it was kind of a big coming out moment for him. But does it, you know, have any practical effect? Like, do we know 
what a performance like this can do to shape somebody's career? Does this go further than just the, you know, the chamber floor? Yeah, no, I think it, it can make a, a difference in a person's career. Just look at Lindsey Graham, you know, and now he's a senator. Lindsey Graham's what? <laughs> Sorry. Lindsey Graham was an impeachment manager in former President Bill Clinton's trial. Ah. And after that, you know, he, he got a lot of buzz as well. And he went on to run for Senate. So I think there is a way that it can have a boost in a lawmaker's career. I was just a tween for Clintons, and now I've seen two in my my 30s here. So uh, they're coming fast and furious. Yes, and thank you for making me feel old, Andy. (laughs) What stood out to me is, you know, we have two members of Congress who are managers in this impeachment trial. And then in the last impeachment trial, Jason Crow was uh, another member of Congress from Colorado. So Hmm. it, it just feels like... For not one of the largest states in the country, we've had a pretty high proportion of members of our delegation having such key roles. Yes. You know, I think there's definitely some Colorado pride in that um, from from the from the delegation, at least the Democratic members of the delegation. (laughs) You know, Pelosi, as you said, has dug into the Colorado bench for impeachments. I think the only one now is is Ed Perlmutter, who hasn't. (laughs) Um, but I think it shows, uh, you know, Jason Crow, as you mentioned in the first impeachment trial, Diana DeGette, who who spoke today as well. It shows that they're not only respected, but can also influence and inform not just, you know, their constituents, but their fellow lawmakers. Well, thank you, Lynn. We don't want to take any more of your time because we know you have an impeachment trial to watch. So we really appreciate you joining us. Thank you both. Bye. Bye. An excerpt from the new season of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News, featuring public affairs reporters Benta Berkland, Andrew Kenny, and in Washington, D.C., Caitlin Kim. Hear the entire episode, which includes a preview of what to expect when state lawmakers reconvene next week through Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts, and at CPR.org. Up next, a real-life Korean-American immigrant story that's now a movie. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In a democracy, every official in government deserves scrutiny, and not just in an election year. That's what we do at CPR News. We help you keep an eye on elected leaders who represent you. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook. We get a lot of questions about how CPR News covers politics and politicians. So we're explaining our coverage and the philosophy behind it. Read how and why we cover Colorado's congressional delegation the way we do at CPR.org. Filmmaker Lee Isaac Chung was born in Denver, but moved with his family to Arkansas, where they started a farm. His parents had come from Korea for a chance at the American dream. Now, decades later, Chung tells the story of his childhood on the big screen. Minari has racked up award after award since its 2020 premiere at Sundance, then in Denver. Now the film is landing in theaters and virtual cinemas. And uh, Isaac, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much. Um, This is great to be speaking to the state of my birth. Of your birth. I want to start by (laughs) thanking you for this film. It gripped me from the get-go. I can't stop thinking about its emotional depth. How, How old were you when your family moved from Denver to the farm in Arkansas? 
Well, actually, there's a lot that's fictionalized in the story. So I was only maybe two months old when we moved out of Denver. My my dad started off in Denver um, as a chicken sexer. And uh, that's where he saved up enough money for my mom and sister to move from Korea over to the U.S. Now, you, you can't just and... say chicken sexer like that without explaining what a chi- <laughs> <laughs> you just said a term we hear every day, Isaac. What is a chicken sexer? Well, you know, this is a job that affects almost anyone who eats chicken. So it, it is something people should know. But uh, it's a job in which baby chickens, after they've hatched, need to be separated by gender. And there's a special technique that was created by the Japanese. And it's something that a lot of Korean immigrants actually did in this country. They were the ones who, in these dusty warehouses, were separating male and female chickens. And it's a skill that you learn. It's not very easy or intuitive. You, you really just have to train many months for this. It is arduous work. And this is how your parents earned the money to be able to buy the farm where you eventually moved. And th- this is depicted as yeah. well in the film. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, they moved first to Atlanta. And then from Atlanta, around the age I was uh, five years old, uh, we ended up on that farm in the Ozarks. So that's what you see in the film. I suppose that means you don't have vivid memories of Colorado. Uh, Arkansas might have been, what, your first images? Yeah, but I'd like to think that it was still in my blood and bones because I still love the mountains. And uh, my my parents and sister and husband all live in Colorado Springs now. So we know Colorado quite well now. Okay, we're hoping they're listening, Isaac. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) What was that move to Arkansas like? As a kid, I just remember that for me, it was a big adventure to go to this wild plot of land that my dad uh, was so excited about. Um, He was always talking about the color of the dirt, and that's something you see in the film. Uh, We had 50 acres of land, and he didn't tell my mom that we were going to do this. So that's something you see in the film as well. (laughs) So I kind of remember those conflicts uh, that, that they were having as they were trying to eke out a new living on a farm. But for me, I mean, I I loved it. And now as a grown man, I kind of look back at my dad who did this at the age that uh, I am now, Mm. um, bringing the family over there. And I have a whole different appreciation and perspective for that time in my life, essentially. Now, in the film, the the adults, your your father, they grow Korean vegetables. Was that true as well for your family in real life? Yeah. uh, So many of the things that you see in the film, they start off from actual uh, events that happened in my life. And I'd say that a lot of what's fiction in the film is the way in which the people are depicted. I I tried to fictionalize them more so that uh, I can increase the drama and the tensions and conflicts between everybody. But there are a lot of elements like the fact that my dad did try to grow Korean produce. He was growing Korean pears. Uh, That was what he was he was doing. And it was tough work. And that's something that we we tried to depict as well in the, in the movie, that farming is really, really difficult work. I, I want to follow up on two things. You talked about the color of the earth. What was the color of the earth there? Um, there in the Ozark region, it's uh, a deep red color. My dad used to say it's really good for fruit trees. So that's why we ended up doing Korean pears. And what does a Korean pear taste like? The texture is nice and crisp, but it's sweet and has kind of a taste of a pear that you think about in in, uh, Western pears. Um, And this was in the 80s. No one had heard of Korean pears or Asian pears. And my dad thought it was going to take off. 
And what I've noticed now is that uh, Korean pears are becoming more trendy, at least here in Los Angeles and other places I've lived. And uh, I think he was a bit ahead of his time, maybe too far ahead of his time. They're perfectly round, right? They're not what we think of as pear-shaped, if I'm thinking of the ones you're talking about. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Some, sometimes people call them Chinese apples because, you know, the, the texture and the shape of them. They have very thick skin, uh, but they're very sweet. That's the joy of eating them. There's a moment of tremendous symbolism from the get-go. The Yi family moves into a home that's up on blocks. It's a double wide. But there's no staircase to get in. They have to, like, leap in. And it really did strike me as a symbol of the difficulties that they would face, the uphill battle, if you will. Mm. Talk about setting a tone in a film early on. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you, appre- you you saw that and you appreciate that. Uh, I, I want to correct you that it was a single wide because those of us who've lived in single wides, we dream of the double wide, um, <laughs> but it was a single wide. And uh, that's one of the details that I, I do remember about that home is that it was up on, uh, when we got there, it was up on wheels. And I found that so fascinating as a kid. And there was a feeling of uh, mobility and possibility with this house. And that's kind of the way I felt that my dad looked at it. But the way my mom would look at it, of course, is, you know, you show up and there are no front steps. There's no way to really get inside unless uh, your dad picks you up or uh, you're helped up. And that to me kind of felt like a symbolic tension between the husband and wife in this story. And, And it was a reason why I wanted to put that detail in. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and our guest is the filmmaker Lee Isaac Chung, whose new movie is Minari, uh, which, by the way, is Korean watercress. Um, a pivotal moment comes when Grandma moves from Korea to Arkansas, and the two kids who've never met her really don't like her much at first or the smells she brings. There's a Korea smell. You've never even been to Korea. Grandma smells like Korea. David. In Korean there, the dad is threatening to spank the boy, tells him to go to bed. Isaac, fundamentally, this is a multi-generational story. Could you tell us about how you developed all of these connections within the family? For me, for a long time, I wanted to tell a story like this in which there are multiple generations. My view on that is within a multi-generational perspective on life, you really get different truths and different ideas and different wisdoms. You know, the, the, the wisdom of a child is just as prescient and important as the wisdom of someone who is an elderly person. And I love that idea that I could maybe shape a story in which all of these perspectives are trying to figure out the same thing. And to me, that's Mm. how to stay together, how to survive together, how to love each other. And that's what really I I hope this film would be all about, this family that's really learning to, to be together and love each other. Yeah, and they have a rough time of it. I mean, the, the family is nearly torn apart uh, by the difficulty of the farming life. Um, mm. What an interesting uh, challenge to start casting people 
who play your family. <laughs> like, I wonder, I wonder if you wanted to have nothing to do with it and just say, I'm surrendering this, or if you uh, felt that you needed to micromanage it, you know, did... <laughs> um, you know, I'm a firm believer in the art of filmmaking and the the art that every single person brings. And so even with the actors, like, I, I tend not to micromanage. I like the idea that everybody's a creator, so one of the first things I told the actors was, I trust you. I trust you as an artist to create something new out of this. And I don't want you to try to imitate. So I asked them not to imitate any of my family members. I didn't share any pictures of mm. my family or provide any clips or anything. But and what about the I, casting? I you had to choose them first. Yeah, even in choosing them... Um, I tried not to think too much about my family, if that makes sense, because I didn't want to become too self-indulgent with this film. Mm. I, I wanted it to work as a story. So I was interested in finding the artisans, really, to, to find the people who could do it. Minari faces a challenge that we don't very often see. It's an American film made by an American filmmaker about a family living in America. And yet a number of awards groups are siloing the film in the foreign language category. And, and I'll say there's a lovely mix of Korean and English in the film. So I watched with subtitles to understand the Korean portions. Um, do you have any thoughts about like the, whether those categorizations should change? It's funny because when I was making the film and writing the film, I wasn't thinking too much about what language it was in because I was just trying to keep it true to my own experiences. I mean, growing up for me, the way that I would talk to my parents, I have broken Korean, they have broken English, and we share a, our own language as a family. It's like, uh, I, I call it just the Chung family language. And uh, <laughs> I, I'd like to think we all do that as people. We, we just speak the human language in many ways through our gestures and facial expressions and things like that. So in general, my view is that I think these categorizations don't always capture the complexity of who we are and how we relate to each other. And um, if changing those categorizations helps us to understand each other better, then so be it. But just because we change those categorizations doesn't necessarily mean that we will understand each other better or that we'll be doing right by each other either. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm torn about that question. There are characters in this film beyond your family. So early on, we meet a man named Paul who offers to work for the Yi family as a farmhand. And Paul's a devout Christian. He prays frequently, speaks in tongues, and he literally carries a cross, a life-sized cross every Sunday, uh, I suppose, to walk in the footsteps of Christ. Um, anyhow, mm -hmm. as, as he and Jacob Yi are tilling the soil— Paul suggests that the farmland might be cursed. The previous farmer had killed himself. You might want to think about doing something out here. You know, what? You know what an exorcism is? <laughs> yeah. No, you so. <clears throat> you know, what happened out here, that's no good. Something like that. Yeah, no good. Out. Out. Out in the name of Jesus. Out. Out. In the name of Jesus. Out. Okay. Now things, things will grow. 
Isaac, did the land ever feel like it was working against your family? Um, in many ways, I think that is something that I did notice as a child, the feeling that a garden can, as we see in scripture, almost capture the entire human experience in a way. There were lots of snakes on our property, very poisonous snakes, I should add. And it was just tough. Uh, life was a toil. Digging the earth and trying to let it yield and submit in a way is very tough work. But then at the same time, there was my grandmother who kind of did the reverse. She, she submitted to the land and she found where we needed to go to plant this plant called Minari and where it would thrive. And that's something that I felt like I learned from that experience too, just the different ways in which we can look at land and approach land. And maybe that helps us look at how we can approach life as well. Do you miss farm life? Um, oh, yes, I, I do miss it in many ways. Um, I live in LA now. I lived in New York for about nine years. And uh, it's always part of you. I, I heard a friend of mine told me that wherever you live when you're about eight years old will probably be the place that you feel most at peace um, when, when things are really difficult. And sometimes I wonder that because uh, when times are tough, I, I do kind of wish I could go walk around on a farm somewhere. <laughs> Um, the sense of place in this film, Minari, is strong, helped along by beautiful cinematography. I'm thinking of how amazing the outdoors scenes look, how great the close-ups are, the striking colors inside, the single wide. Do you want to say just a few words about the visual elements of this? Uh, yeah, I had some amazing collaborators on this film. The way that they worked in tandem together to get all the details right and to kind of visually show this story in a very poetic way, both the outdoors and indoors. Um, I, I just give them a lot of credit for that. Um, they, they took a lot of my ideas and made them better. And yeah, we worked a lot on wanting to create a feeling and atmosphere with this film. Um, yeah, I, I'm just so proud of the work that, that we all did together on it. The music helps carry that as well. We'll, we'll leave with a little bit of, of the soundtrack, which I can't stop listening to. I'm just like, Playing it on loop, Isaac. Um, are <laughs> I'm your... so glad, yeah. Emil Moseri, our composer, just yeah. tremendous composer. Yeah, he's, he's a genius. You mentioned that your family uh, still lives in Colorado, Colorado Springs. Uh, yes, that's right. What do they make of the film? And are they the, the ultimate, um, I don't want to say the ultimate audience, but are they like the audience you were most interested in pleasing or not? I, th I would say that uh, they were the audience I was most scared of. So <laughs> Maybe that's a better way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Um, just because I know uh, I'm, I'm getting so personal with this film and uh, I'm really talking a lot about my memories of childhood. I think they were stressed uh, before I showed it to them. But I had them come out here from Colorado. They came out here and watched the film with me and in uh, one of my family, other family members' living rooms. And um, it was such an experience watching it. They were getting so emotional and uh, they told me all night long they couldn't dream about anything else but our farm and that time together. And um, the way that we talked to each other after that, I, I just felt like we were really seeing each other in a way. It, it felt like, yeah, it, it was magical. That's, that's all I can say. Um, and it was probably the most special screening that we've had. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Ryan. This was great. 
Director Lee Isaac Chung was born in Denver, then moved with his family to a farm in Arkansas. Chung captures that time in the new film Minetti. From the really lush soundtrack, this is Rain Song. Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to the team that prunes and tends to our show. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Monica Castillo, who's to CPR News and KRCC. Oh, my God.